Welcome to One Million Experiments, a podcast showcasing and exploring how we define and create safety in a world without police and prisons. This is season two, and we are so hyped to be back with you. I am Kiss. We back, baby. It's Damon. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> that was a many, many month uh, buildup of return. We're so happy to be back with you talking the with- The street's been waiting. I know. It's been a drought. We coming back with the work. <laughs> And here we are with season two. Um, For those of you who this is your first time tuning in, welcome. We're so happy to have you. What we do here is on each episode, we talk with a different experiment, uh, formulation, group, campaign, community that is experimenting. And what does it mean to build safety for their people, for their communities, for their city, for their futures? We got a great first season of those conversations. If you haven't checked those out, make sure you go back and tune in. And if you are a listener, welcome back. And you know that we don't do this alone. Uh, we have our special guest co-host, our partner in decriminalization, the one and only Eva Nagao from Interrupting Criminalization is back with us. Hello, Eva. Hey, hey. Good to be back, y'all. Welcome back to the lab. So um, good to have you. How has your your hiatus been? Have you been doing anything particularly of note? Have you, you know, been traveling the world, dreaming of season two? What, what, what does this time look like? And what are you excited to be back in the lab with us doing? You know, we've got a lot cooking over at millionexperiments.com. For those of you who have been with us through this long journey, I think we started at 20 experiments or something that we were documenting on our little website. We've got a whole redesign going. We've got close to a hundred experiments up. We've got a new Instagram account. This year we have a newsletter. So the cooks have been cooking, but Damon, you reminded me earlier not to respond to a how are you doing with what work you have been doing question. (laughs) Um, And I've been good, y'all. I've been really good. We took a breath in December and it was nice. Um, especially over here in sunny California. Maybe it would be good just to give folks a little reminder, refresher on you know who the partner orgs are on this here podcast. Well, you see here on this here podcast. Uh-huh, we've gotten um, very country this season. <laughs> I'm here at the table representing a couple of orgs. We have Project Nia, um, One Million Experiments co-founder, Mariam Kaba's project, um, Project Nia is actually ending, sunsetting this year in 2023. A lesson to all the amazing organizations out there. You can do amazing work and sometimes you can sunset that amazing work. Um, You know, Project Nia has been around for the past decade plus, working to end incarceration of children and young adults, um, mostly by promoting restorative and transformative justice practices. Uh, Miriam and I have been co-conspirators for a long time now. And I joined her on this latest venture with Andrea J. Ritchie, Interrupting Criminalization. It's an initiative that aims to interrupt and end the growing criminalization and incarceration of women, girls, trans, and gender nonconforming people of color. Over at IC, I am the creative director, and um, I get to convince people that we get to do cool projects like this here project with Ergo. So now that we know who the players are a little bit, you know, Damon and I build conversations in Chicago and beyond with movement folks, people reshaping the culture of our city and world toward liberation. Um, Let's go ahead and get into who we're talking to on this first episode of season two. Eva, who we're going to be talking with? 
We have the great pleasure um, of debuting the season with Makia Green from Harriet's Wildest Dreams. And I um, I actually got to meet Makia, which is kind of rare for our work where we're talking to so many people from so many different places. But Makia came to a conference that we were throwing out here in California and is just the most vibrant, bubbling, amazing personality. If you ever have the chance to be in space with them, take it. Harriet's Wildest Dreams is an organization that was put together. Um, the co-conductors, the co-founders are really you know, seasoned organizers in the Black Lives Movement ecosystem. Um, this is something that came up around the 2020 uprisings and is now growing exponentially. They are a Black-led community defense hub in the greater Washington area. Um, for those of you not from that area, we call it the DMV which is DC, Maryland, and Virginia, not your like hated local uh, motor vehicle <laughs> department. Um, their work centers around um, Black lives most at risk for state-sanctioned violence. It includes work around legal empowerment, political and civic education, mass protest, organizing campaigns, and community care that builds alternatives to oppressive systems. Harriet's Wildest Dreams has three main pillars, um, and we talk about some of those in this episode. There's the political defense pillar, or as they call it, Ella's Emancipators, and that consists of base building, advocacy, and budget and policy campaigns to change living conditions for Black people from ending solitary confinement to decriminalizing drugs. The second pillar is legal defense, or Ida Be Free and is committed to building local power through transformational direct actions. They do this by organizing, strategizing, and responding, and they work to decrease the power of the carceral state and oppressive systems. The last pillar is the community defense pillar, or Harriet's responders, which we go into in some detail. This pillar is committed to building local power through transformational direct actions and is a part of a larger coalition called the DC Safety Team. You can find out more about their work at harrietsdreams.org. And with that, why don't we go ahead and hop into the lab for this conversation? All right, we are back. We are hopping in the lab and heading out to D.C. and very excited to be in community and welcome to One Million Experiments. We have Makia Green, everybody. <laughs> thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. Hey, thank you so much for being here. I am. I'm going to tell you the truth. Wasn't having the best morning. And then I started preparing for this conversation and I got really excited. Yeah, thank you for your time. And we're going to get started with our two-part question, as we always do. And it's centered around time. In this time, whether that be this hour, day, season, or lifetime. In this time, how is the world treating you? And how are you treating the world, Makia Green? Oh, thank you. Yeah, hey, everyone. My name's Makia. Use all pronouns. And uh, people love me call me Kiki. Uh, so I'm a co-founder of Harriet's Wildest Dreams. And... Ah, the world is treating me. I would say the white supremacist world is trying to uh, take us out. However, the world of love, of Black love and fellowship, I feel really good. I was able to spend time with my people last night for Fenty Bowl. And (laughs) (laughs) we, yes, we hollered, we danced, we sang, we cried. um, The full range of emotions. So I'm feeling very loved in that sense. 
So for posterity's sake, for people listening this years and years in the future, learning the the amazing work of Harriet's Wildest Dreams, this weekend there was a football game and the highlight was at the center of it, Rihanna performed at halftime and seemed to reveal also new things to come. I have one other, one Rihanna question. Did you expect a Ponder replay? Whoa. There was no Ponder replay. There was no oh. Ponder replay. Everyone expected it. It was like her first song. You know, she she was quoted. She said, you know, you're trying to fit 17 years of a catalog into 13 minutes. It's tough. But to be fair, about 10 of those, 10 of those years had no new songs. So it's not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that I'm confirms just... for me what kind of space I am. <laughs> no, no, no. Daniel does not represent the space completely. I, this, this is a, a fifty household over here. That's, but that's I, fact. I, I mean, okay, <laughs> you're exaggerating. That, that's hype. That's hyperbole. Okay, it's hyperbole. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's get back on track here. I'll see myself out. I'll take it from there. <laughs> yeah, man. Yes, he, <laughs> you throwing off my my Rihanna plus one card. This is gonna be trouble in my household if this gets out. <laughs> We're gonna have to edit this episode. <laughs> I'm trying to maintain peace and sanctity here. <laughs> for, for the sake of for the sake of the work, I'm gonna move forward. Which, <laughs> um, you know, we have this very kind of tenuous and fraught metaphor that that we use throughout this one million experiment show, uh, which is the scientific process which neither of us one are experts on two really fully understand even at this point um but we do know that it starts with a hypothesis and so for you and the work of harriet's wildest dreams when you go back to the you know the origins what was the hypothesis uh, of what the work would be and what it would make possible i tell you my hypothesis (gasps) harriet's wildest dreams we we founded we found each other um, in 2021. Um, so we are about to reach our, our two-year mark. And we had a breadth of experience. Um, I'd been organizing in D.C. since 2015 um, and similar for my other co-founders. And we were trying to maybe ask a question, but in a way also answer a question that we felt like 2020 opened up for us. And some of it is like, Um, When it comes to abolition, what could we win? What could be possible? What could we do together that we could not do alone? I think that was a a key piece from 2020. We are also trying to find what does community defense look like with a diversity of tactics? You know, we came out of a mass protest, a highway protest, Black Lives Matter moments of organizing and then decided we really need a a political home for abolitionists in the DMV region, DC, Maryland, Virginia. And we also need to be able to have this diversity of tactics, not people working in silos, but us with thousands and thousands of different experiments of work. And and it's exciting to see in just like, doing the first pass of research in your work, just how many interconnections and coalition style projects encompass all of, of what y'all do. Uh, but there was a word that you used and that's very prominent in how y'all name yourself that I want to dig deep in. And that's defense. Uh, you know, I want to do the, the praxis of it, the theory and the practice of like 
you know, that is a, a historical relic of our movement, the, the, the notion of defense as language, uh, but then also the practices of what it actually looks like to show up and to defend against the numerous uncountable harms that our people are susceptible to. Uh, so, yeah, talk to me about the choice to use the word defense, how that shows up, how you think about it. Has there been any change in like that, like loose 50 year arc of how I, you know, am naming it 60 year. Damn. Damn. We, you know, OK. Uh, but yeah, talk to us about defense. <laughs> to be fair, you weren't there at the beginning. <laughs> I wasn't there. I do like imagine myself <laughs> like I was in it. <laughs> My previous me. <laughs> so named after Harriet Tubman, um, right. we are a Black-led abolitionist community defense hub, you know, centering all Black lives and most at risk for state-sanctioned violence for the greater Washington area. And the word defense comes in a couple of different ways. One, we want to recognize um, that our opposition is on the offense, right? That mm-hmm. this is not solely a a conversation about theory, but this is real lives being impacted by harmful policies, harmful institutions, um, practices, and all the isms of the world, and that it is our job to be active in our defense of our folks. Um, It also kind of gets into the ancestors that we follow in our work. We're named after Harriet Tubman, um, you know, long known as a conductor of the Underground Railroad. Um, we also follow Ida B. Wells, a investigative journalist and speaker that was one of the first people to actually really document what was happening with mass lynchings um, for Black people. And then we also follow Ella Baker, a lot of times considered the strategist behind the civil rights movement um, from building up Black futures through the creation of SNCC, um, through supporting with the Southern uh, Christian Leadership Conference. And just for me, one of the first times I saw and listened to a Black woman talking about civil rights, but also internationalism. And so that was really big for me. And I actually follow her in my work with base building. And so I bring up those three women because we believe that they were folks that were defending um, our right to life, our right to survive, our right to thrive and to build new communities. And folks that you know, in many different ways, through base building, through public speaking, through literally getting our people out of cages in different tactics, they were all uh, defending the community. And so we put out a call to folks to get active, to get, as we call on the freedom train, right? We're called, we call ourselves conductors. And so we are trying to conduct a freedom train that has space for everyone to get on. Mm. I love the way you named those direct lineages and the and the ways that you build not just on like their names or their historical significance, but the like processes that they use and the 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 like frameworks that they brought to the work. I think one of the unique things about diving so deep into that type of lineage is that you learn things about the people that like you've known their work, but you know you don't haven't necessarily gone as deep for for any of those three folks or anyone else who you see yourself in lineage as you've gotten a deeper understanding of what they did. Have there been things that you've learned that like you feel like in general, even people who are involved in movement or who know those names maybe uh, maybe don't know? Let's see. I can start with Mama Harriet. Um, one of the things that I really love about her is the fact that people know, okay, Harriet Tubman, she got to freedom and how she would constantly be going back for her family. That was her main goal, right? Was to like, try and take care of her family. And with each trip, 
she saw more and more how many other people had to come with her. Harriet Tubman wasn't the only person to run away to freedom. But for a lot of folks, she was a symbol of freedom, right? They called her Moses. They didn't even know her name, Harriet Tubman. And it was the idea of her, the story of her that inspired hundreds of other people to seek freedom. It inspired people to join the abolition movement. And at the end of the day, her main goal was getting her parents to freedom, finding her sister, you know, at one point getting her um, husband to freedom. And so for me, that talks about, you know, if we want to talk about abolition, how are we talking to our family members? What are we doing about the folks that are the closest to us, right? Our cousins that are currently locked up, our friends that are dealing with the medical industrial complex and all of these things, and that some ways of like trying to free ourselves as she tried to free herself and free our family members, our politics deepen, our experiments get stronger. Um, and I think as a mode of organizing, um, it's very inspiring uh, to have that kind of mustard seed faith to inspire other folks to empower their families. That's so beautiful. I, I want to use that framing and that like relationship to time to project forward a little bit because the 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 beauty of of how I understand Harriet is not only like the direct material freedom that she brought to living beings, it was what that freedom making made possible in the contemporary sense, like in her time that that allowed for new literature that allowed for new workshops and popular education that allowed for the mobilizations that then became the civil war right but there's also what it did to future imaginations right because the way we understand and imagine harriet's work in the underground railroad as an infrastructure is that that is how we got free and that is true but it's also true that it was only about 1 to 5% of the population of enslaved peoples that actually got free on that passage. But we imagine it as if it was, that's how we got out, right? And so using that imagination, what do you hope future centuries or future decades understand about now, right? Like even if we're just getting a few dozen or a few hundred folks free, what do you hope people know about this time or imagine about this time when they look back? Because you are the Harriet of today, not the, you are a Harriet of today. Mm -hmm. The way that I understand your question is also kind of like, what kind of ancestor do I want to be? I want the folks in the future to know that we love them, that we care deeply for them, that our choices were intentional, right? They were not, you know, it just happened that way. It just, Trump just happened to get elected. We just happened to protest. We just happened to teach masses about white supremacy and capitalism, but that every choice we've made was an intentional step towards love and wanting them to have a better future, that we will build everything that we need to build, that we will defend what we need to defend, and that we are committed to this, whether we see the freedom that we talk about or not um, in this lifetime. I just want the folks in the future to know that I love them on purpose. Hmm. That's beautiful. Um, and, and in the, the scale and the scope of what that work has looked like, as Damon mentioned earlier, I think one of the things that really struck us in, in learning about Joe's work is, as it probably should be, how many of the branches and the, and the campaigns of the work that y'all do are in deep collaboration with other folks in your, in your region. And I know that sounds like a little like, of course, we should be in coalition and collaboration, but for people who have done this, they know it's not always the easiest thing. 
or always for some folks like the first thing that they choose. Um, and so I'm wondering, I know this, you know, came out of 2020 uprising. And so there was some of that, that was just what, what happened, but how intentional has that choice been? And, and what have some of those lessons been around learning how to do this work, you know, together with people who are maybe outside of your, you know, your closest sphere? Well, I think it comes with an understanding of power that we are trying to build power for our people. Um, and without people, there's no power. We are stronger together. I think that's, you know, a huge lesson you got out of 2020. Um, and also, if if one of us had the answers to freedom, we'd, we'd be free already. It's kind of like a necessity. There really isn't much that I can do alone. Um, so it's more so we need to support people in creating coalitions in a way that is healthy, in a way that does not um, lend us to burnout, in a way that brings people closest to the pain, closest to power. Um, so it is something that we do really well in our area of bringing different folks together, whether bringing harm reductionists with abolitionists um, to, you know, to organize, um, to decriminalize poverty, but also to train folks on how to, you know, be rapid responders in their community, um, trying to bridge policy experts and, you know, folks who are all in the criminal justice policy space that maybe they're not abolitionists, but bringing them to the table to train them on abolition, you know, you don't have to be in Harriet's wildest dreams, but what you won't do, right? Like we want you to know what we're doing. We want you to be in community with us so that you can understand the things that we're fighting for. And so we have a bunch of different coalitions that are working on different work from, like I said, we have our DC safety squad um, trying to really bring in the skills training, right? So we can talk a lot about theory. I talk a lot about policy, but what I love DC Safety Squad, and it's also named after Harriet Tubman, it's like helping people with material conditions. And if you want to be on that freedom train, you have to go get skilled up, right? Be Have a tangible, um, a tangible thing to do in your community, um, whether that's being a legal observer, whether that's learning how to give out Narcan, you know, whether that's being mental health responder in your family, um, that's pushing people to be skilled up. And we're learning from folks across the district who are experts at that. We do some coalitions with court watching, right? Um, Kiana Johnson, who's uh, one of our co-conductors, talks about how injustice happens in empty courtrooms. And a lot of times our people are going into these courtrooms and they're alone. Um, and there's so much happening. And so while we're outside protesting around the police, once someone has been arrested, we really cannot leave our folks alone in that journey. And so we have a citywide DC court watch coalition where folks of different organizations are all committed to keeping data around what's happening in the courts, fostering and mobilizing volunteers, and then continuing that understanding and learning to literally get our people out of cages, right? So yeah, it's some of the coalition work we're doing. It's really amazing. I want to stay with this court watching thing because th this is a space I think that, as you've named accurately, abolitionist movement needs to have much more focus on. I want to shout out in our space in Chicago, Chicago Torture Justice Center and the Chicago Community Bond Fund really opened my perspective to what's happening just on a day-to-day -day basis. And so- what do people need to learn about how harmful 
the court proceedings are because I think there's like a disconnect. Like we we understand the cop and then we understand the prison guard. And I think we miss this other cloaked in honor and dignity symbol that is really one of the, the main power players in carceral violence. Um, so yeah, in the DC space, which also is really unique, how are you seeing the harms of the court be re-understood through this defense work? Right. So that is one thing that I love because there are people who come into the work and they're like, okay, I'm down. I'm, I'm curious about it. And then when we bring you into being a court watcher, you actually need to sit with and be in solidarity with folks as you see it happening in front of you. Um, and so there's a different type of learning that happens there. One thing that you'll see when you engage in court watch, led by Kiana Johnson and Frankie Sebron um, in my in Harriet's, is first we need to reveal the actions of the prosecutors. Because yes, the police arrest folks. Sometimes the police are arresting people for things that are not quote-unquote, illegal, right? I say illegal in crime in quotation marks because we know that it is all relative to white supremacy. Then you have the prosecutors and what they decide to be able to charge people with. You have the judges, right? You have their decisions on whether to keep our folks um, in cages or to send them home, whether they're putting our folks under surveillance. One of the things that can be so heartbreaking is the number of children that are going through this system, but really are not prepared. I mean, it's really hard to prepare yourself to be in this situation, but we work with so many folks that have no knowledge of who are the people in the room that are making decisions about their life, how anti-Blackness is actually coming into play. For us, we call our folks loved ones, right? So we don't say like defendants or things like that. We say how our loved ones, they're whole human beings, right? We help them build out a social bio packet and help them advocate for themselves to get their folks out of cages. What was that word? S- social bio packets? A social bio packet. Mm-hmm. A social biography. A social bio packet is really just to show um, the prosecutor and the judge that this person is loved and this person is a whole person. To see them beyond you know, just a number or just like a, a check mark on a list whether very like tangibly of our people are put on like gang databases or just ideas within the mind of when they see our folks and they're just like, oh, I've seen this person before. I don't have to dive any deeper into this. Our folks are just not treated with the humanity. And so we do work with them to create social bio packets and then help them in, you know, getting community service and doing whatever we have to do to save them from being in a cage. Those two programs, participatory defense, goes hand in hand with the court watch program. Um, so, yeah, I, I a lot of times we do only talk about police and the prison guard. We don't talk about the prosecutor. We don't talk about the judge. You don't even talk about the person who you pay to bail someone out, right? Like someone who's like a civil servant, right? Like not a lawyer, not a police person, but also makes the decisions right there on whether they're like, oh, you got to give me 10%. Or you got to give me 100%. For folks that don't know, the bail process, you maybe you have a $10,000 bail. Um, but the clerk can say, okay, I just need 10% of that. And then if you give me 10%, you can be released. And then you have to make your court date and you'll receive that money back. 
but the clerk can decide if actually I want a hundred percent, actually I want 50%. It's just based on that day mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. whatever. Arbitrary power. Exactly. It's that. And so there are a lot of people at play that have been increasing and strengthening uh, mass incarceration and there's no transparency or accountability um, for those folks. Mm -hmm. One thing that's also really important for work that is happening, um, like court accountability work, um, is that our work is led um, by formerly incarcerated folks. It's really important that folks who have direct lived experience with courts be a part of this process, if not leaders in the accountability and the organizing when it comes to courts. Can you speak a little more to that? Like, what are the particular, like, in some ways, like intangibles that people who have been in that situation bring to that conversation? Is it about the trust with uh, the other loved ones who are going through that moment in connection? Is it the lived experience of seeing how one thing leads to another? Like, what what unique possibilities have you seen come because that's who's been leading that piece of the work? It's kind of so all-encompassing that like, okay, you know, how do I dive mm. into the specifics? Even just the fact that we use the word community loved one, right? That came from folks who are like, I'm really tired of being called a criminal or defendant. These words are to dehumanize me, right? And so that is some of the reasoning why we use the word community loved one in all of our testimonies and our writings to not only force ourselves to change that carceral language, but also when we go and advocate, we're also pushing the elected leaders to get rid of that carceral language. And that truly just comes with having lived experience to know how that feels and the impact of it. Mm. Yeah, that's a beautiful language intervention that I have a feeling we may borrow if that's okay with you and maybe bring to our spaces here. Yeah, again, that that is is so powerful. I also imagine, you know, in my experience, there's also an, an expertise that folks who have survived carceral spaces have just in the legal lexicon of like that, you know, I, I there are a lot of folks who I think surpass even the technical detail of like attorneys oftentimes when they have been in solidarity with folks who have been experiencing court systems for decades now. So that, that's something that I also think about. But I, I'm really moved by the intentional use of language and, and community loved ones and the tool that is the, the social bio packet, because that feels like something that everybody could benefit from and could help in the school systems, could help in mutual aid programs can help in all institutions of like, this is my community, this is how I'm seen, and it's documented, and I can name these affirming relationships in whatever space I'm in. And my humanity is within my body, but it's also documented that I'm loved. Like that, that is such a powerful tool that I don't want people to move past as it's just something to do to, you know, convince a prosecutor to go a certain way, right? Like in creating them, have you, is that something that other folks have named or something you could imagine what what looks like? Completely. And it, you know, it's, it's not just for the prosecutor or the judge. It's also for the public defender, right? Mm -hmm. They, public defenders are often overworked. They don't have the full time to be able to really understand who each of our loved ones are. And so a social bio packet also helps there, right? To provide a fuller story um, for the public defenders in these types of cases. And also, we had a young person who was um, at risk of being suspended. And, you know, if you're in establishing, you, you may already know about the 
that school to prison pipeline and how um, Black children are suspended, pushed out of school and pushed into the criminal legal system. An incident happened at school and this uh, young girl was being discriminated against and judged very harshly by the principal um, in the disciplinary board. And what we plotted together was, okay, let's make a social bio packet for her. There's, you know, thousands of kids at this school. To them, she may not seem like she deserves this an intentional look at. And so we're going to build out a packet where she writes a letter, where you write a letter, where we all come together to show that, you know, this is a person and the decisions they make are going to have a lasting impact on her and let's set her up for success. And so I agree, you can definitely use this way of thinking for other situations in schools. Um, But at the core of it is getting to know people better, right? And moving slower. The system is funneling people through it, like hundreds and thousands of people every day and making these huge decisions that are breaking up families and destroying whole communities. Um, like it's a factory and a social bio packet is at the core is like, get to know folks, move slower, be more intentional. Erica Totten, who was a mentor of mine in uh, learning how to organize, she always would say, we don't have time to rush. And, (laughs) (laughs) uh, you know, and so I, I think about that around like, the criminal legal system, restorative justice, um, and rehabilitation and conflict mediation, right? We deserve taking the time out to get to know people deeply. That's a bar. Say say the name. (laughs) Erica Totten. Erica, you did something there. I'm going to use that. I'm going to have to shout out Erica. That's that's a t-shirt. That's a, yeah, that's fire. Um, (laughs) That's that's true in terms of like the getting to know people, but also just in terms of like, how do you balance importance and urgency? of like the urgency can be so detrimental and how do you still hold the importance of it at the same time? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. bravo, Erica. <laughs> so I, I want to go deeper into the infrastructure and the lessons of y'all's participation in the DC safety squad. And one, just like we, you know, in looking through the websites and the research, just the document that lays out the, sh- the structure of the DC safety squad in itself is impressive and a useful resource that is available. Um, but yeah, can you talk a little bit more about that larger infrastructure, how Harry responders plays into that space? And, and, you know, if you have any learnings, whether it be firsthand or from your community of folks that feel really important to you. Right. So Heritage Responders Community Defense Pillar is led by Nini Tay, um, who is another co-conductor. Heritage Responders is our folks who's outside. They're doing a plethora of like skills-based trainings, direct action trainings and so forth. They're leading police accountability campaigns, right? If a, a loved one is taken um, by police, who are the folks that are going to show up, support that family, help them through this process and also help them advocate for what justice means for them. That is our Heritage Responders pillar. And then a coalition program from Heritage Responders is the DC Safety Squad, which is a coalition of individuals and organizations that are all about finding some alternatives to policing, right? It's all about saying that we deserve the time to experiment. 
whether that is building out cop watch teams, jail support teams, medical responders, that folks are like, I'm going to stay, I'm committed to this. You know, 2020, it brought up the name of abolition. So we have thousands of people who are like, all right, abolish them, but what next? And we find that our people, Black folks in every city all across the country, they get that they can't really trust the police, but they also don't have another viable option that they feel like they can trust and rely on um, to help them. And so DC Safety Squad is all about fitting ourselves into that gap. How has that been going? The response has been immense and so rewarding, right? So many organizations are willing to jump in. So many people have joined. I would say DC Safety Squad has grown exponentially um, since the soft launch last year. And they are very busy. One of the things that is beautiful is they're working with the organization called Rahim. And Rahim is building a patch network app where folks can um, request um, emergency support. And so right now folks are getting trained on how to use this app um, and working with Rahim and working with the other rapper responders in the city. Wow. I mean, it sounds like, and obviously, of course, things scale at different paces, but, you know, a lot of what, especially in the first season we talked about in the show was like the challenge and in some ways the like detrimental effect of feeling like you have to answer that question all the time, especially when it's posed in bad faith of like, you know, the quote unquote alternative. But it's, of course, like rewarding to hear like the ways that that challenge is being taken up and and the infrastructure is being built, not just the like, we're the eight people who are committed enough that we're going to like try to meet all of the needs for everybody all the time but like understanding really what does it take to build this like alternative infrastructure whether that's on the tech end the people end the movement end the scale of that is is such an impressive undertaking you know completely because the police have had hundreds of years to build this some uh, bullshit some bullshit. I, like, <laughs> I wanted to ask, like, can I curse on you? Um, <laughs> and so when the council members, you know, they look at us and they're like, oh, well, if we take what, what, what else? What else? What could we do if we get rid of the police? Or they give you that hypothetical situation. Or what happened to me on air a couple weeks ago, someone described a really heinous incident of harm in my hood, actually. And was like, you know, what if that were to happen again? And but you but you don't want the police. And I was like, and they didn't stop it. It happened. That is actively happening. That is not a hypothetical situation in this post-police world that's happening. And we don't have anyone to respond to it. Like this happened last week. And by DC Safety Squad abolitionist Harriet Wilder Streams is saying, our people deserve better. We actually want to stop and prevent harm, um, not just show up afterwards. And the beauty of your work in our movement is it's not only telling established power that we want more. It's also recognizing with ourselves we want to and have to be more. Really what I hear is like, you know, similar to, you know, if you set up 
the, the traditional mutual aid table and like you provide groceries, the people who receive the groceries benefit materially and also learn that there are people out here who want to redistribute food. And then the people who bring the groceries and distribute the groceries learn a new way to be in community with people. And so using kind of that dynamic or that relationship, I'm curious where that internal growth has happened in the mutual reciprocity in terms of this harm response. Like have people experienced a new response in a time of need and learn more about this movement and have people responded to folks in times of need that taught them more about their capacity or honestly even limitations in like what we need to build is that too does that make sense what i'm asking it does make sense it does okay. make sense i would say it's definitely our mutual aid pillar because it's like i'm showing up for folks and i'm changing my relationship to one another I would say, for example, we had a fellowship this past summer, and this was our first time that we included youth ages like 15 and up in our summer organizing fellowship. And one of our young people, they're doing court watch, they're out in community canvassing, asking people about what safety means for them. Um, They're fully entrenched in all of the, on the freedom train. And this young boy went home to his parents um, and they reached out to me and said, He came home today and said, I feel like I have a purpose now. For me, like I cried. I'm not even going to lie, right? To be like a young Black boy um, growing up in D.C. and to feel like you have a purpose. And that purpose is like helping your people get free. You know, that's enough for me to, to jump up for joy. But I think that is a piece, a representation of the ways that we can change ourselves um, by being involved in this work. It's not just, hey, come help Harriet's Wildest Dreams, right? It's an offer to, as Mary Hook says, be um, transformed in the service of the work, you know? I want to I want to check in with 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 the space with 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 your home and how y'all are doing because as you've named many times, right? Like a lot of this work is shaped by uprising of 2020, which was national and global in its dimensions. Uh, But DC also had a unique upturn uh, in 2021 um, that in many ways as this, you know, know, uptick in fascism is a a major part of it is a counter response or a counter offense to our liberatory movements, right? So, you know, January 6th, as many folks know, there was a white supremacist centered <laughs> you know, it's a insurrectionist attempt uh, in DC. And a thing that I've been concerned about and have curiosity is there was a hyper militarized response and investment as a result of that white supremacist uprising. Uh, and my assumption is that Black people were directly harmed by that. And so that's the frame I'm working with. That's my assumption. I feel pretty safe in that assumption. But I want to check in with you of one, how y'all are doing. One, that's that it was more than just a news story for y'all. But two, how did the militarized response to white supremacy impact Black people in, in, in the space? So there's a couple things, right? Um, one, I have been... I was born in New York City. I've lived, uh, only lived in New York, in D.C. Um, and so... You got a Daniels, a New Yorker. Just to okay. Let you know. yeah. Where are New York you from? <laughs> I'm from Harlem. Okay, from the Bronx. Yeah. Uptown, okay. Let's hey, keep going. Uptown. <laughs> so I say that to say that my personal experience with overt racism, fascism, 
um, in folks who identify themselves as white supremacists is a really unique experience being of like the Northeast or coastal elites, right? Nothing I say in the is to take away from like the experience of my comrades in the South, my comrades in the Midwest. Um, my family is from South Carolina and they experience racism in a completely different way than I do. That being said, the time around that summer, that election to January 6th was absolutely terrifying. It did not start with January 6th. These uh, Proud Boys, white supremacists, fascist trumpets, as I call them. Um, <laughs> what a how great has word. nobody done that? I mean, that's fantastic. Just blowing wind it's up the air. Hot air, yeah. Honestly, honestly, no shade and honestly, no offense to trumpet players. I played the trumpet player. <laughs> oh, true, 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 true. Know, true. Like, yeah, love to trumpet players. Um, but I call them that because of just like the sound that it's just like, ugh. Anyway, um, so an off-key trumpet uh-huh, is how I feel uh-huh. about this. <laughs> Um, but I lived downtown a couple of blocks away from the White House. They were patrolling, marching. They were having multiple trips to D.C. leading up to January 6th. Um, there was violence. They've stabbed people. They were attacking the Black Lives Matter mural um, that existed, as we call it, the Black Lives Matter fence. Right. So people, people who came across from all around the world during 2020 to show their love for black people in the movement created this beautiful mural. And it was just the white supremacist job of just coming down to just try and tear it down. Um, And it was community folks that defended our protesters, that defended the, the fence, defended the unhoused people who lived downtown not the police. The police often protected them, worked with them. And we named, these people are talking about coming back here. Like they are getting more violent. The city ignored us. Um, The police obviously ignored us. There was a lot of warnings about what January 6th was going to look like just because of the violence that they had been showing in DC itself. And so it was really terrifying to live downtown at that time. Right. There were times I couldn't go to sleep because people are literally chanting outside of my apartment building. We hate gay people and a lot of other really obscene things about black people, about trans folks, um, about women. And so when January 6th happened, it was shocked. There was a lot of fear, but it was also this moment of it seemed like everyone else started to realize like these people are real, like if they can come here on this day, imagine what they're doing as teachers, imagine what they're doing as police officers or elected officials or the havoc that they are reaping. Bankers. Right. They're, they're people that are making decisions. Like they're your babysitters. They're, you know, they are within your community and and they feel this strongly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to say the least. To be, to be clear. They, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, one of these things, something has to connect. Yeah, right. Honestly, that was my, it was like a prayer of like this mass violence, which was shocking. I've, I mean, I wasn't there. We, we put out a thing to tell people, do not go outside. Harriet's Wilder's Dreams had not been officially started yet. But as movement leaders in D.C., we pushed all like, left folks and asked them to not engage because we knew how violent it was going to get. Even just the people who went out to record, right? So many people were either brutalized and traumatized by what happened. So 
I guess my main points are we told them that this was about to happen. And most times for this, you can look at the violence that black and brown people are experiencing because we are always the canaries in the mine. How did that um, build up and then that day, if at all, inform how y'all define defense once the organization was built? Mm, I think, you know, the right or the trumpets, they, they seem to try and co-opt everything. They co-opt the words of freedom, of liberation. They co-opt abolition. <laughs> they considered themselves some form of defenders, right? To me, I think they're defending white supremacy and white dominance. For us, we very much recognize that these people are actively trying to tear down you know, however I care about the Capitol building, but it is more about the idea of progress, the idea of diversity, the idea of ending fascism and our own bodily autonomy as marginalized people. And they are actively trying to tear that down, everything that we build. And so it necessitated us to build a community defense hub from January 6th and even just the defense that we had to do that year of literally defending our art, literally defending our people with our bodies, right, physically. And I wanted to pull back to what you talked about around the investment. It changed the landscape for us when it came to advocating for defunding the police. It became this thing of like, the police were now this this coveted agency, right? All of the harms that had happened, 2021 was the highest rate of uh, murders by police in our city. Right. All of that seemed to kind of be erased because of the recentering of police as like defenders of our community because of January 6th. And also the amount of funding that went to police, you know, in overtime hours. Um, I think from 2020 to 2021, they had over a million overtime hours um, that went to police budgets. I think not dollars, hours. Hours, right? Hours. No, m- many, many more millions. Of that. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah. No, I think in what in, in twenty twenty, I think I had twenty five officers that had three million dollars in addition to their salaries, and one of them was a dog handler. Like when you counted it all up, they like the their all of their bonuses ended up to be about three million dollars that year. Anyway, the point is there was a, a a big investment in policing, whether culturally in an idea in trust and also in dollars. Yeah. You, you, you named a necessity to have to defend your creations and your space with your bodies. And so I'm thinking about bodies in the personal specific, but then body as in like, a body politic or an organization as an organism, what healing, regenerative, repairing, somatic work did y'all have to learn or or have to deploy that you already knew? As I heard you say that, my heart just went to, you know, how do we we heal those bodies or or what attention was given to them? Yes. And can I do two things? Please do. Okay. So one, um, I mentioned the Black Lives Matter memorial fence. Um, and it is actually an artifact collection. It was protected uh, by Nadine Sealer and Karen Irwin, people who literally for months 
were outside every single day, sitting in front of this memorial fence um, to protect it from white supremacists all year round. And it actually is a collection that is in our library. So just wanted to shout them out and thank you for that defense um, to protect our history, right? Um, and then I think when it comes to the body, right? So I'm a, I'm a body positive, fat positive activist as well. And so I love books like The Body is Not an Apology and very much in the same sense of the way you described it. Somatic practices, um, I don't have a, a long drawn out like, oh, we do like Tai Chi, we do this. Like our people are just at breathing. Our people are at learning how to breathe. I could spend all year on breathing for the folks within my organization, our members and our loved ones um, to get into like a practice of it and a practice of getting ourselves grounded, centered. A world without police means we have to know how to de-escalate ourselves. And that in itself takes many, 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 many experiments and practices. So I think for me, the most grounding thing that I can do for myself and that I can encourage new folks to do is to get a practice on breathing. Mm. Uh, you mentioned that book, but are there any other resources that have been helpful for you or folks in your, in your circle? Ooh. Um, that was a good I'm... deep breath. In <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, Sonia Renee Taylor writes, the body is not an apology. Um, and it's a book about, the power of radical self-love, to see ourselves outside of this white supremacist capitalist view on bodies, right? Um, but let's see, I'm trying to remember because the people who taught me how to breathe are a part of like an amazing Black leadership uh, with bold. Might it be bold? Yeah. Yes. I was like, like bold taught me how to breathe. We could, we could have done a like survey says and we both would have done <laughs> Yeah. I was like, I'm trying to think like, okay, where do, where do they get that from? Um, one of the things and the reason why our Harriet's Wilder Streams encourages um, spirituality and encourages transformative justice and, and not just having restorative justice, not just having transformative justice, but also relationship with the world and relationship with spirit comes from the fact that it, most of us learned how to be activists in this, in this world through, um, like I said, Erica Totten, through the emotional emancipation circles. Um, so emotional emancipation circles um, are community self-help groups. Great name. Have you, do you know about them? I know. I just, that's a great name. I'm just a fan <laughs> of the words you just yeah. said. <laughs> and it, it comes from this uh, community healing network and the Association of Black Psychologists. And then Erica Totten really revolutionized it for me by giving it a more movement-minded, queer-friendly, trans-friendly focus. Um, but just myself sitting in a community group healing space on a weekly basis to talk about what are the ways that the world is trying to take me out and what are the lies that I've been told about myself my blackness, my movement, my body, my gender, um, and how can I dispel those lies? It's just like, that is the question that we are asking ourselves every single week. I think it made me a stronger person um, and someone that is much more interested in, you know, fighting for freedom in a way that does not tear me down. Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. I was just going to say, I, I, 
just to name resources that you know to look deeper into what's been named but also as we, we shouted out bold one of the founders of bold is alta star who's amazing who uh works with a space called generative somatics so you go to generative somatics.org and they have a, a daily practice tab they also have a practitioner's network that you can either learn from or sign up to be a part of so for folks looking to go deeper in that work that's a resource thank you as we move towards winding down, I think what you just said about having the space to not just alone, but also in, in a group, ask those very specific and important questions. Um, one I think is just useful for listeners is something that's a tool that they could add to their toolbox and an important set of questions to stay, uh, you know, ruminating on. But you know, as we as we think about the the many experiments that that Harriet's has done. Are there other particular tools, uh, frameworks, you know, if, if someone were to try to build something similar in their space, what would you want to make sure they know, have, understand? My biggest thing with anyone who's trying to start organizing their community is to be in their community. You know, nothing is possible without having, you know, deep community input. The first thing that I did as like a political organizer for Harriet's is a Black belief survey, right? Where we are just going outside and asking people what, how they care about safety, what, what does it look like for them, and to just learn about what are you willing to do. One of the questions we asked, right, was if you were trained and skilled, what would you be willing to do in your community without police? And just that question alone can provide a lot of information for what you want to build and what makes the most sense. Because I think, Danny, you talked about it of like, we're not, you know, fixing the entire system in one day. We're doing small little experiments. Maybe it's a brick light clinic, right? Maybe it's a know your rights class. Maybe it's something that is small that we can replicate and make sustainable. Um, so I would say be in community survey your community, ask them those key questions, and then experiment. At the risk of being redundant. Which is a risk we take from time to time. We take, yeah, yeah, we're risk takers here. Um, (laughs) I I wanna invite you to stay in that space of kind of like, as we're winding down these reflections, I wanna frame it in two ways. One, invitation. So one, are there any direct invitations for Harriet's wildest dreams, like things you want people to show up to, or for people who aren't in the DC space, invitations into this work. And then we'll come back out of that of like the conclusions you have to kind of wind down from our hypothesis. We are always looking for folks. Uh, We're looking for Black folks to become members. We're looking for allies to be agitators. Um, And uh, folks can go to harrietsdreams.org. If folks are like, I just want to read about your work. Um, We have like a like 20 page impact report where folks can read about our work, can read letters from our, our fellows and just get into the nitty gritty of the work we do. Maybe you're not in the DC area or the DMV area. My thing is I believe in organization. I believe in formations. And so I do encourage people to find a political home. Um, and it's okay, date a political home if you need to, but be intentional. <laughs> about the way that you spend your time um, in the communities that you're trying to join and be a part of. Um, so I would definitely push joining a formation near you. I'm a part of the movement for Black Lives. Um, so I'm really big on trying to connect people across the country to all kinds of formations. 
Um, so yeah. And so we started with a hypothesis of the work. Um, and you offered so many lessons and so many methods, so many resources, so many approaches. Uh, but for you, what are some, just for this moment, conclusions you've had from learning and experimenting with Harriet's Wildest Dreams? One that feels really clear on a political sense that the, the need to prioritize a Black queer feminist lens in all the organizing that we do to get at the root cause of issues, right? Um, as, you know, Charlene Carruthers talks about, you know, needing to place the voices in the political lives of Black femmes, queers, and LGBTQIA folks. Um, so I've seen that be even a higher priority in the two years that I've, I've been organizing uh, in Harriet's. And then also, I don't have to show up for every fight I'm invited to. Mm. Mm. that's a big lesson for me in the two years in this organizing that's a tough one mm-hmm. i'm an aries also so that's really hard okay <laughs> <laughs> at, at the risk of opening a big can of worms as much or as little as you want to share like what has that meant for you what has that made possible i mean in a simplistic sense Every time a council member says, oh, I don't really know if you got people power because you didn't bring no one to my special meeting. And if we can't bring people to that meeting for whatever reason, y'all got the meeting at a time where people are at work or people don't even trust you because you keep pulling us to come tell you um, what we need and you don't do nothing about it. Right. Like I'm not going to be pushed into a sense of urgency um, by folks who have no history um, in changing living conditions for my people. That's a form of me not showing up for every fight. It also means like, you know, we can't respond to everything. I am deeply trying to build power. I'm trying to build networks. We're going to show up for our folks, but I'm also not an ambulance chaser. And I really appreciate the people who are that are like my point in this movement is to show up every single time there's a loss of life in our community. And we need those people. And I also understand that the formation I'm building at Harriet's, we cannot sustain that kind of work. So we try to deepen our political lens with each loss um, and create opportunities for folks to organize. Mm. Beautiful. Um, is, is there anything before we end you know, that we didn't touch on that you want to make sure gets included in this conversation? I mean, I guess just ways that people can find us. Um, like I said, HarrietStreams.org. Uh, if folks would like to follow me in, you know, on Instagram, Fat Fairy Godmother, I really encourage people to get active in abolition and then also to, you know, look into some of that uh, fat liberation work as well. I started with naming it and just want to thank you again for being so gracious in this time with us but for your commitment to this work and and just, you know, I'd heard the name, but in learning more specifically about what you do, I'm so encouraged and grounded to see such a robust example of who we want to be. So it's hard to get the affirmation we deserve in this space. And I just want you to know that like you are seen and as people are hearing this, like you and y'all, the big you, are really impacting our world towards what it needs to be. So thank you so much. And I, I look forward to now being further connected now that we've had this conversation. Yes, thank <laughs> you so much. This has been so heartwarming.
That was Makia Green from Harriet's Wildest Dreams. What a great conversation. And now that we've learned so much from them, it's time for the peer review. Hoping I don't offend all my peers. Eva, welcome back. It's great to be back, Damon. Let's dive in. I mean, for you, what were some of the things that like initially stuck out from that conversation? You know, I have a lot of background knowledge about this organization, having watched them progress over the past couple of years. Also, D.C. is a special place for me because I grew up in Maryland. So I've got some ties to this community in particular. But I, I mean, just it is an immense amount of work that Harriet's Wildest Dreams is doing, is undertaking, is imagining. Um it was so great to be in the lab with them because I think they're so upfront about how much experimentation is going on. And I think especially when you're diving into abolitionist organizing right now, you know, we talk about the urgency that people can often prod abolitionists and and others with. And I think what a great example of people navigating at a pace that they're setting in community with intentionality, with love. And also just an important organization to watch about how we handle moving abolitionist agendas and community demands in the future. I think we're going to see in abolition organizations um, this tension between community building, community defense, and abolitionist principles, um, you know, come to the forefront of conversations more now and to really struggle, you know, about what it's like to respond to community violence and what it means to be an abolitionist voice, you know, not calling for the prosecution or imprisonment of anyone, including police officers, including, you know, people in the state who are who are harming our community. And I just think it's an important conversation to have. It's an important context for all these conversations. And that Makia really shows us how we can come to the table to mobilize together, um, to not work in silos, and to really focus on direct material aid, you know, while still doing the work, the reading, the conversations that need to be had to push those wild dreams even further. Yeah, I think it goes to how they responded, Damon, to your question about, as they so like succinctly paraphrased, what type of ancestor they want to be. Like, there is this long view that's so present in what they're trying to build while still not losing sight of what does it mean day to day to do this work. And I think one of the values of that long view is also like understanding the importance of, and maybe this is my own bias, but like the archive of it also. Like that in all of that work and all of that defense, one of the things that they really made a point of prioritizing was the defense of that memorial fence. Like the idea that one of the things that they were proud to share was that that wall now lives in a space that it'll be a, a teaching tool, a learning tool, and a record of the work that they've done in that time. And seeing the work that it took to get that to that space, right? That that was a space that was under threat, not just for the present, but also for how we understand this moment in the future. And so I think, you know, obviously that's part of what we're trying to do here. But it was interesting to hear someone who's so in the mix, uh, still seeing the value and importance and the prioritization of that type of work, too. Yeah, I I, I have three things real quick that that are sticking with me. I'm going to be tight on this one. So one just how direct their work is, right? Like abolitionist work is more than just engaging the carceral space. It is more than just intervening when harm is happening. But that is also a very important and central thing that we need to do, right? So the directness of defending in the court 
and also having rapid response teams that are providing defense in community from from harm that occurs while also defending against you know counter movement and like white supremacy literally in the streets right so in addition to all of the humanizing community building work like directly addressing harm and violence in the state and in community and just want folks to to see that that is happening in that way secondly to your point you just made daniel that their connection to time and the way that they ground this work not just linguistically but like in format in this lineage of, of femme freedom fighters and do the work of Ella and Ida and Harriet, like not just in name, uh, which led to that notion of, of ancestors of tomorrow, which I, you know, is really important to me. And then thirdly, I, I've grown into being this word nerd, as you know, some of the <laughs> listeners may know. And so just how intentional they are, <laughs> how intentional they are with language and how some of those language emergences touch spaces that I've been a part of in Chicago. So the, the intentional use of conductor as an agent of like defense and change and transformation um, and protection, um, the intentional use of loved ones, right? Like knowing that these um, symbols of idea, which is what language is, is really important in how we shape our relationships to each other and to the spaces we're engaging. And so seeing that as a point of defense or intervention or frontlining, how we speak about the work and our connections to each other is something that like, I just really take with me and, and affirm. Makia mentioned this as a takeaway in their interview, but I just, I love it so much. Um, they said that they were not going to be pushed into a sense of urgency by people who have no history of changing living conditions for my people. And that gets to the point of million experiments. When we started this project, it was because people were clamoring for so-called alternatives there was a sense of urgency and movement to provide examples, to provide organizations, to show this work and the long legacy of this work that is being done all the time. And, you know, one of the things that spurred us on making this collection was knowing that we are going to be asked those questions again in the future and not to cave into that sense of urgency, but to really show people what they've been missing out on. So I appreciated Makia's stance and it really made me think about the the first days that we were conceptualizing One Million Experiments and what led us here um, and what will drive the work going forward, which is these flashpoints in time, but also documenting the work um, and showcasing it. Yeah, I mean, look at all that they've been able to build because they were reacting with the commitment, but not the urgency, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, what a great start to the second season. As we mentioned up top, if you want to find out more about the work of Harriet's Wildest Dreams, go to harrietsdreams.org. Eva, how can folks find all the million things that uh, One Million Experiments is working on? Well, you can go to millionexperiments.com. And can I get a sound effect here? Depend. Great. Yeah, okay. And you can now go to our new Instagram page, which is at million experiments. We on the ground, baby. Look at that. <laughs> and if you went to the website like a year ago, it's made some substantial upgrades. It's also a, a really accessible way to learn about the experiments that we haven't yet gotten to and all the work happening. So make sure you go check that out. You can find the work of Interrupted Criminalization where, Eva? interruptingcriminalization.com if you can get if you can spell all that out you're there google will help you and i just want to make <laughs> you say interrupt crim one more time when you say what the twitter is 
either Twitter and Instagram and all of those good socials are at Interrupt Crim. It's just so funny when you say it because you are like, I know, I know it's not the best we can come up with, but it's hard to come up with names. Uh, We're at Ergo Radio. Again, it's hard to come up with names Uh, on all socials. Make sure that you subscribe, comment, rate and review One Million Experiments wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Just type in One Million Experiments on your favorite podcasting platform. Much love to the people. Peace.